2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes
3: everything. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from
0: HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the amazing, the marvelous, the stupendous Stuff You Missed in History Class podcast. I am Katie the Clairvoyant Lambert. And I am the spectacular Sarah Doughty. And we are injecting a little extra magic into our podcast today because we're talking about the master mystifier, Harry Houdini. Harry Houdini. If someone asked you to name a famous magician, Houdini is probably the very first person who comes to mind, at least before David Blaine, one would hope.
3: Or Joe Bluth,
2: Maybe. Well, he does illusions.
3: Sarah. So. He's, he's a pretend different famous different. musician. He is. Magician. All right. So Houdini wasn't born Harry Houdini, though, of course. He was born Eric Weiss on March 24th, 1874, to Cecilia Weiss and Mayor Samuel Weiss in the newly consolidated Budapest.
2: Which is interesting, because in a lot of his later interviews, he claims he was born in Wisconsin, but... He was actually Hungarian.
3: Yeah, he, he moved to Appleton, Wisconsin, when he was a toddler or young boy, because his father was called to serve as a rabbi for the German-speaking Zion Reform Jewish congregation. But unfortunately for the family, his father's tenure there
2: was not very long, because the congregation thought he was so old-fashioned. Right, and they dismissed him abruptly, and the family never quite recovered financially from this. They've got seven kids, yeah. and it's tough to keep a family with seven kids afloat, regardless. But when you're hopping from job to job and can't find doesn't steady employment... doesn't speak English,
3: and... No, it's They it's have a tough, a tough life early on. Um, so they end up moving from Appleton to Milwaukee, and the young Eric shines shoes and sells newspapers and does little odds and end type jobs to help keep
2: his family afloat. And around this time, it's also when he sees his first circus. And after that, he teaches himself to walk a tightrope in his backyard. And he'd also seen the tightrope walker hang by his teeth from the tightrope, so, you know, little Eric is very excited about this, and he tries it himself and knocks out all of his teeth because he hadn't realized you use a mouthpiece for yeah. that sort of thing. Oh, and oh dear. <laughs> the human body doesn't really dangle well from, you know, little seven-year-old teeth.
3: Well, and he's also really into locks at this point, and he starts messing around with them at home and on shops. He supposedly learns how to pick locks in the kitchen, trying to steal baked goods from... From his,
2: mom, well, his mom wasn't looking. As good a start as any to magic, I yeah. think. <laughs> and he also makes a solemn promise at the age of 12 to his dad that he will always, always provide for his mother, especially if something happens to his father. And he keeps to his word for yeah. the rest of his life. He's really attached to his mother. But he does leave home at 12. and Trying to make his fortune, trying to help out.
3: Yeah, strike out on his own. He goes to Delvin, Wisconsin, and um, he meets a new mother figure there, a woman who feels sorry for this little ragamuffin boy, and takes him in, gives him a bath and a bed and food. And when he has a job, when he's older, he sends her a shirt with dollar bills in it, and continues to
2: send her presents from all over the world for for the rest of her life. So this gives you an idea of Houdini's character and the kind of guy that he was. The family ends up in New York. And again, Harry's got all kinds of odd jobs trying to help the family. He's a messenger boy for a while and just trying to hustle for a little bit of money. And uh, he starts performing in vaudeville shows, but he's not
3: terribly successful. For someone like Houdini, you imagine him... Being successful as soon as he gets on stage, but it takes a long time. It is a long, hard climb to the top. It does. And, uh, but while he's working in a necktie cutting factory in New York, he at least makes one change that sends him on the road to fame. He reads an autobiography of Robert Houdin, who's the father of modern magic. And, um, he likes the name so much that he decides to take it on
2: himself or his stage name. Right. A friend of his had told him that if you add the letter I to someone's name in French, it means that you're like them. So he thought, oh, okay, no Uda, Houdini. It's perfect. Because Houdin had some very cool tricks. One of them was he had these orange trees that would just grow in front of the audience or a wine bottle that poured whatever you want. That's bottomlessly. A nice concept. Isn't oh, very cool. <laughs> And Houdini also accepted Udan's belief about magic, which is that a magician isn't just someone who performs tricks. He's someone who almost has supernatural powers. And he's also someone who has to believe his own lies, or the audience isn't going yeah, to. Yeah, lives, lives the life. Exactly. Um,
3: but by 1892, Houdini's father died. And even though that makes financial uh the financial situation for the family even harder. It allows Houdini to be a full-time performer. You have to imagine his former rabbi
2: father was kind of reining him in a little bit there. So around this time is when the brothers Houdini are formed. And first, it's Harry and his friend Jacob Hyman. It ends up being Hyman's brother Joe, and then Harry's brother Theo. But they do tricks with scarves and flowers, lots of stuff with cards. Um, Yeah, Houdini really focuses on cards early on. For a long time, yeah. And they do a simple trunk escape, but that's about it. He's honing his craft. He learns some rope-tie escapes from an Australian magician, but it's pretty simple stuff in the beginning. They're not really minor league, though. They do get to perform at the Chicago World's Fair,
3: so they have some publicity. They're just not making much money.
2: Right, and part of that is because Houdini hasn't learned yet about showmanship, which he eventually gets the hang of. It's not just... Doing tricks, you've got to sell the audience. The whole persona on it. of Houdini. Right. When he starts doing his famous straightjacket escape, he puts on the straitjacket and then actually like goes behind a curtain, gets out of it and comes back out. And finally someone suggested to him, why don't you do it in front of the audience so they can see how you do it?
3: Well in, in having that delay for escapes, you know, so you don't get out right away because then people think something they they were tricked somehow, but actually take your time and pretend to struggle and really play it all up. Right,
2: But the act changes in around 1893 because Houdini meets a girl, Bess Raymond, whose real name was Wilhelmina Beatrice Rahner. And she's working with the Floral Sisters, which is a song and dance act. And Theo arranges a blind date for him, his brother's Harry. Bess and some other girl from the group. And it is love at first sight for Harry and Bess. they married after three weeks. And they're very poor. Bess said she basically paid for her own ring. And her Catholic family was completely horrified that she'd married a Jewish guy. And you have a pretty great quote from Bess, too. (laughs) She said she (laughs) sold her virginity to Houdini for an orange, just as an idea of just how How poor poor they they were. were. So
3: Houdini replaces Theo with Bess.
2: And she's a tiny little
3: lady, 5 feet, 90 pounds, so she's great for these future escape kind of tricks right, and into switcheroos spaces. he'll be doing. Um, and they work together in a circus for a while, and it's there that he learns to use his toes almost like fingers. And picks up strong man stuff and sword
2: swallowing all all things that'll come into his show later on right I, m- I imagine if you couldn't work with your toes that well it would be very helpful for helping with getting out of knots locks and straightjas and,
3: jackets and
2: yeah. he also learned a trick where he would swallow a bunch of needles and then a piece of thread and then you could look inside his mouth nothing there of course and then somehow he pull out the thread with the needles threaded on it, and this becomes a signature of the Houdini Act. I would like to see that. He also starts the straight jacket escape in around 1899. It's very dramatic. He came across the idea when he was at an asylum in Canada and was trying to figure out just how he could do it. Like if you had to, you know, dislocate Dis- your shoulders. Yeah, or, bones or- right. And so then he learned to do it in front of an audience and with all the writhing and jerking about that made it so intense. But even while picking up all these impressive skills,
3: Houdini and Bess are still really poor. They have shows canceled. No one's buying tickets. And um, this is when they actually live on rabbits for a few weeks,
2: with With a a quarter they borrowed. It wasn't even their own money. So they get into seances because spiritualism has become very popular and this is one thing they can actually make money. It's a on. big money making industry, uh just communicating with the dead.
3: A, a lot of a lot of tricks to make people believe that you actually have a spirit
2: present and um, it's a lot of Some of it's just not so nice. Like for a yeah. while they worked as Bible salesmen so they could get in people's homes and look at their family Bibles and look up Old family members and deaths and births and and things. Right. So they could use that information later or pick up little things in the street. Houdini had said that when they were in one city, he'd seen a woman talking to her child, you know, and warning him to be careful on his bicycle. So later, when they were channeling some spirit or other, he said that the little boy would have broken his arm and she went home and he had, in fact, broken his arm. And Houdini felt terrible about that.
3: Yeah. He's. He's pretty superstitious as is Bess, and the
2: deception behind the seances really bothers them. And this will come up a little bit later, but first we'll get to Houdini's fame when he becomes someone who makes something like $45,000 a week in today's money. So I'm thinking of switching to magic. So the, the key decision for Houdini was getting away from the card tricks and
3: moving towards doing escapes. And the impresario Martin Beck advises him to do this,
2: and then books him on vaudeville's Orpheum circuit. So this is Houdini's start. Right. And 1900 is when the fame really hits. He gets this reputation for these death-defying escapes from shackles and ropes and all sorts of containers and handcuffs. And he starts promoting himself in Europe. By the time he gets back, he is an international superstar.
3: Yeah, and his abilities depended partly on his amazing strength and endurance. Houdini ran and swam and maintained this um, incredibly in-shape physique, um, but he's also got the skill at manipulating locks, which is something
2: that's pretty unique to him. Right. So he comes home and he's super rich and buys all these houses and pretty much can do whatever he wants. So he starts a magazine called Conjurer's Monthly in 1906, which is a place I think I'd like to work because it's very much his own personality that's coming through. He'll write these snotty articles about his enemies and then really cool stuff about his own handcuff tricks and cryptography and then nasty book reviews of people he doesn't like. It sounds like a lot of fun, I'm not going to lie.
3: And he writes a book on the history of magic around this time, too, where he turns on Robert Houdin, his his namesake.
2: Right, and tries to quote-unquote, like, give him his proper place in history. I think yeah. that's the final title of it. At first, I think it was just going to be, look how amazing Houdin is, and then after a while, he, he thought he maybe he research. was just an imitator
3: and yeah.
2: took other people's
3: ideas. So we're going to go through some of Houdini's great escapes because I'm sure all you listeners would like to like to hear your favorites mentioned. His first big one was January seventh, nineteen o six, when he escaped from the Washington D.C. jail cell of Charles Guiteau, who was the assassin of President Garfield. So, as you can imagine, that got a lot of press. Escaping from the
2: assassin's cell. And in January of 1908, he introduces the milk can escape in St. Louis, which is still one of his most famous tricks. And it's a little hard to explain. You kind of need the visual yeah, of what a milk look can up, is. Yeah, look up a milk can. Google image that. But it's this teeny tiny space, and what he would do is first just get into it while it was full of water, and he'd tell the audience to hold their breaths and see if they could do it for as long as he could, because Houdini could hold his breath for three minutes. So... Of course, none of them can, and they're all gasping by the time he gets out of it. And then he would come out very dramatically and be handcuffed several times and then go back into the milk can and somehow get out.
3: And of course, you can imagine Houdini has a lot of imitators. Um, One guy, Janesta, dies while trying to do the milk can escape. And
2: Houdini was trying to discourage a lot of imitators. He would say, you know, the showmanship stuff, the death-defying stunt and all that. And that but helps promote, but also maybe dissuade people from copycatting. Because, again, he was in fantastic shape. And even then, it was really hard on the body. The water can stuff and things like the straitjacket. At some point, he burst a blood vessel trying to get out of chains. He's in chronic pain for the rest of his life. These aren't easy to do. Easy feats on the body, to yes. Do. Uh, by March 30th to
3: April 4th of 1908, he performed at the Hammerstein's Theater in New York in the famous Weed Tire Grip Chain Escape. And then not too long after that, he did a manacled
2: jump from Harvard Bridge in Boston. In Paris, he jumped handcuffed from the roof of the morgue into the Seine. And he also jumps off Queensbridge in Australia. It's one of the best stories. <laughs> so gross. It's over kind of a, a nasty, muddy river. And when he came up from his jump, there were two figures and the crowd is sitting there is, looking is that at that part it. of the trick? Exactly, but it was a corpse that he dislodged from the river mud and he no. describes <laughs> that water is not particularly toothsome.
3: No, and he makes a challenge to his fans of $1000 for a device that would hold him, which even continues to further his his fame. Right. A lot of people take him up on it and they try to try to figure something out that'll hold the great Houdini. Um, and By 1910, he's gotten an interest in aviation. He's the first person to sustain flight of Australia. This is also hard on his body.
2: Right, and it, it contributes to that whole daredevil mystique, because flying was extremely dangerous at the time. While his very first flight crashed, he's lucky he ended up not being hurt, but there were several casualties when it all first started. So the fact that he was so into it and so willing to do it says something about his character as well.
3: This might be one of our favorite illusions he performs. In 1918, he vanishes Jenny the Elephant at New York's Hippodrome. I would really like to see this. I I want to see this so badly. There are pictures of Houdini
2: and the elephant, but that's That's not enough for me. What happened? I want to see her vanish. Tell (laughs) us, you can't. He's also in a lot of motion pictures from 1916 to 1923, but surprisingly, these don't do well. The switch to motion
3: pictures was just one change in his career. As he got older, he started a campaign against charlatans, uh, against the mind readers and the mediums and the people who claim they had supernatural powers. He was going to expose them as charlatans, debunk their powers, and uh, got pretty into it. It was a crusade almost for him.
2: Right, because a lot of these people were making a very lucrative living off of people's grief. You know, they would have a child die. As he knew. Right. You'd have a child or a family member, a loved one die, and they would say they could put you in touch with that person. One guy was even... Put a man in touch with his dead wife, but really just hired a prostitute to dress up like her and the man ended up dying of a heart attack. But it was a, a shady business. Yeah, so, to say the least. So a little guilt from his
3: own, own experiences as a charlatan early in his career and then just um, trying to shine a light on this shady industry that's really
2: thriving. And his main target is a woman named Nina Crandon, who's known in her medium life as Marjorie who did a lot of seances, and she's championed by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who is a very good friend of Houdini's until all this business kind of starts up and they have a falling out. He ends up not quite being able to disprove Marjorie, but a Harvard grad student does later, and she will come up in a little later. She will. Remember
3: her name. Remember the name Marjorie. He writes a couple books on this, Miracle Mongers and Their Methods, and A Magician Among Spirits, and he even combines this exposing the charlatans into his own act. He does this sort of triumvirate of Houdini um, skills, you know, magic tricks and escapes and then exposing the charlatans. So, a triple bill, if you will.
2: But despite all of that, Houdini and Bess make an agreement among themselves that whoever dies first will try to communicate with the other one. They have a secret code word. I think it's something like Rosebell or Rosabelle. But it doesn't Work. Beatrice herself says it's a failure before she died. Yeah. So keeping
3: on the subject of death, on October 31st, 1926, Houdini died in Detroit. And a lot of people think that he died in one of
2: his escape acts, uh, specifically the upside down water torture cell, which is kind of like the milk can thing, except he's placed upside down, like shackled by his feet, to the top of this water cell. It's likely you've seen this because why people believe he died in this act is because
3: of the Tony Curtis movie from the 1950s. And you've probably seen it in countless magician movies. It's sort of the main attraction.
2: But Houdini did not die in one of his tricks. No, and the quote-unquote true story is that He was punched in the abdomen by a college student and then dies of a ruptured appendix a week later. So let's give that a little background. Yeah, so
3: Houdini would accept punches from people because he had such amazing abdominal control that it would just bounce off, basically. It wouldn't hurt his organs. So this college student comes up to him when he's relaxing on the sofa and asks him, is it true that you can be punched in the stomach? And Houdini, yeah, yeah, it's true. (laughs) And doesn't have enough time to contract his muscles and protect himself before the college student starts punching away. And so it's thought that Houdini's injured in these punches and dies from the appendicitis a week later.
2: But medically, that doesn't make a lot of sense because you can't just punch someone and rupture their appendix and then they end up dying of appendicitis. That's not how it works. He may have already had appendicitis, and I'm sure being punched in the appendix certainly wouldn't help. But it also didn't help that there was no such thing as antibiotics at the time, and that he refused to go to the doctor. He just kept putting on shows, even though he clearly wasn't well. He was just sweaty and feverish. And finally, I think Bass insisted, but at that point it was too late. But there's another
3: theory put forward in The Secret Life of Houdini, which is a book published a few years ago by William Kalush and Larry Sloman. And that's that Houdini was murdered, not a manslaughter kind of thing like the college student, but was really murdered
2: and poisoned specifically. Right. And Bess did have food poisoning and was in the hospital, I think, at the same time as Harry Houdini. So... There's at least a little tiny bit of evidence to yeah. go off of. So the authors contacted Marjorie the
3: Medium, who you might remember from earlier, contacted her great-granddaughter and asked her if she had any papers and records, and and she did. And it turns out that Marjorie's husband was a Harvard-trained surgeon and an expert in appendectomies and hated Houdini hated him, as Marjorie would have, too. How could you hate Houdini? Well, if if he's trying to debunk your whole profession. Um, and the husband is weird, too. He's adopting little boys from England, and they're disappearing. So there's this whole nebulous situation with the mediums going on right around Houdini's death. And the mediums foretell his death, and he dies right after. So there might be a some kind of sketchy connection there. Yeah,
2: if you're into conspiracy theories, this is one we'd like to hear more about. Email us at podcast at howstuffworks.com and let us know what you think.
3: Well, and Katie and I also realized that a lot of our podcasts involve exhuming a body. That seems to be a theme lately of us telling you to dig up dead <laughs>
2: people. So,
3: And that's come up with Houdini. Some people want to exhume him and try to find out if he was really murdered. But that's a weird deal, too, because... Uh, there was supposedly a request to exhume the body up in 2008, but there, you won't find anything about it since then. If you do, please email us, because I'm really curious about that.
2: I say publicity stunt, so Houdini publicity might be proud the book. By, the, yeah, by the guys who wrote um, The Secret Life of Houdini. Side note, also from the book, these guys had suggested that Houdini was a secret agent before World War I with the United States and Great Britain.
3: Yeah, he certainly was friends with police and with agents, but they suggest that he befriends the head of Scotland Yard's special branch, William Melville, and he sends back info from Germany on stuff like, you know, I just saw the Kaiser's aircraft. And um, a double side note on that, Melville retires in 1903, or so everyone thinks, but he actually goes on to start the MI5 and was the handler of Sidney Riley, who is believed to be the template of James Bond. So I really like the idea that maybe British intelligence services use some of Houdini's tricks when training their secret agents.
2: Well, and he was interested, really interested in stuff like cryptography and special little gadgets to hide things, because, of course, you always want to hide a half key if you can. Yeah. So it's really cool to think that, yeah, he might have been part of that.
3: And the fascination with Houdini's life and death has not slackened since 1926. There's an official Houdini seance every year.
2: Houdini is buried in Queens, but the cemetery has had to be closed to the public because there's been so much vandalism to his tomb. Yeah, in
3: 1975. The original marble bust of Houdini was crushed with a sledgehammer trying to get the secrets out of his head. It's a very literal interpretation of that, guys. And the Society of American Magicians have replaced it twice with cheaper copies, but they've disappeared. Um, so they finally had to create a removable version that... You know, makes appearances on special occasions and rides around in a child safety seat. (laughs) Always buckle up. It goes to a secret, like it, it's kept permanently in a secret location maintained by a Brooklyn dentist. But one of the, one of the stolen busts reappeared just a few years ago in a closet in a cardboard box. So,
2: pretty wild. And as far as Houdini memorabilia goes, a lot of his letters and posters and cards from performances were destroyed in a house fire in late 2006 when a burglar attempted to light his crack pipe. So thanks a lot, crack pipe smoking burglar. Houdini but, memorabilia is kind of scattered
3: all over the place. Well, too. and he
2: had so much stuff because he was writing that book on the history of magic. So it wasn't just his own stuff. It was also things, you know, from Robert Houdin and all these others. Fathers of Magic. Yeah, he was kind of a
3: historian of magic. And a bunch of that is simply gone. But some of the memorabilia is in a permanent location in Appleton, Wisconsin, at the Houdini Museum. And the museum features an explanation on the metamorphosis, a trick that was a switcheroo between Houdini and Beatrice. And there was a lot of controversy over this exhibit because it revealed the secret to the trick, which some magicians thought-break the magician's code.
2: Right, but Houdini revealed some of his own secrets. He told a lot of his handcuff tricks in his own writing and even tried to sell them at some points when he was poor. So I'm not sure he'd be entirely against his signature trick being told. I guess that's about it. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed your introduction to the marvelous world of Harry Houdini. But if that's not enough for you, we've got articles on how sword swallowing works and how fire breathing works. And you can look for them on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit
3: howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History class blog on the
1: HowStuffWorks.com homepage.
2: Zumo Play.